On this week's episode, we welcome Chief of Police, Metropolitan Police Department, Robert Conti. We're fortunate today that we have the most important police chief, as I'm concerned, in the country. Um, the Chief of Police for our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Robert Conti, Jr., the third. And he joins us for the next hour. For the next hour, it'll just be the chief and the moderator as we talk about the most important issues of the day. But first, let me welcome the chief to our broadcast house, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, could you help our viewers understand um, some of the complex issues of accountability, procedures, early warning, and the physical security process that have come under scrutiny from January 6th, specifically help us understand how w the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department interfaces and overlaps with the Capitol Hill Police. Because there is so much inaccurate and emotional-driven information swirling around the world today, and some of it is just not factual or accurate. And we ask you to explain this to us. Yeah, so the Metropolitan Police Department uh, is the primary law enforcement agency in the nation's capital. And those who are from the Washington, D.C. region uh, understand how some of the other police departments kind of fit uh, into, that, into that puzzle. Uh, for example, you have the Secret Service, who has primary responsibility for the White House, the White House grounds, much like U.S. Capitol Police, they have responsibility for U.S. Capitol, U.S. Capitol grounds. Supreme Court Police, albeit a small police department, they have responsibility for the Supreme Court uh, and its grounds. So many law enforcement agencies operating within the nation's capital, but, you know, as I will oftentimes say, when you pick up the phone and dial 911, you get the Metropolitan Police Department every time. So we are the primary law enforcement agency. Uh, specifically on January the 6th, you know, our role uh, we had responsibility for the city uh, proper, uh, for all things around pretty much the National Mall. Uh, we had U.S. Park Police uh, involved that day. We had many other law enforcement agencies involved. Uh, when the events occurred on the Capitol grounds, uh, the, there was a call from the U.S. Capitol Police to the Metropolitan Police Department requesting that we uh, assist them uh, with what was happening at the U.S. Capitol. And as you know, the U.S. Capitol Police, they work for the legislative uh, branch of government. You know, they're not part of the other branches of government. They specifically are for the legislative branch of government. So it's a lot of, uh, you know, movement that happens in that space between the law enforcement agencies. But because we do it so often with things like State of the Union, inauguration, uh, other national security special events, uh, we have to interact and interface with them uh, quite frequently. So we're able to do that. And again, on January the 6th, when, this, uh, when, this, uh, when, uh, when everything occurred on January the 6th, we were called in to assist. So I was at the recent rally on September 18th, where the Metropolitan Police and everybody was in full force. The cages were up, the barriers were up. It, it seems to some people that is what should have happened leading up to January 6th because you had the same intelligence, you had the same concerns, and much of, a lot of what you're about is your instinct, and you have great sources. Why wasn't that same process in place for the weekend of leading up to January 6th that was in place for September 18th? So I will say for the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, it was. Uh, for us, uh, we were fully activated as an agency. 
Uh, we invited in other police agencies, uh, several of the local surrounding agencies, Prince George's County Police, uh, Montgomery County Police, Virginia State Police, Arlington County Police. I mean, they were working uh, with the District of Columbia uh, Police Department here uh, in our nation's capital on January the 6th. Again, keeping in mind how each entity has responsibility for its area, the U.S. Capitol Police have responsibility for Capitol Police uh, for the grounds itself. So the security plan for that, while we were aware of what their security plan was, we don't control, you know, ultimately what their posture will look like, what their ask will be, uh, would be for to protect the Capitol uh, itself. So, you know, that's really a question, you know, better aimed for the Capitol Police leadership to kind of answer that. But I can say, without a doubt, the Metropolitan Police Department fully deployed, fully activated uh, with the resources that we needed for January the 6th. You know, taking over as police chief for the capital, capital city for America is no doubt fraught with challenges. Sure. And can you shed light on what you see as your most pressing challenges taking over this critically important job at this time in our nation's history? And also, one of your first challenges is always this the manpower and budget. Yeah. That's very critical to your success. Does the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department have the current manpower required to perform the task of protecting them, the people's capital? So there, there are many challenges uh, that we that we have faced. The budget and the manpower, obviously, is a, is a challenge. I and mean, I've talked about that publicly uh, before. Uh, right now, the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, we are probably at a 20-year low in terms of uh, staffing, right? At a time when you have increasing population, uh, you have uh, crime levels that are increasing. Uh, you have, on top of that, uh, just, you know, the city coming back to life after COVID, if you will, right? So more people coming back into our city, but you have a decreasing uh, police force. Um, to me, that is not uh, where we should be as a police agency. And I have publicly uh, talked about that. Uh, certainly in a space when you talk about the difficult challenges that we need to navigate, you know, at, coming out of an era of, you know, well, I won't even say coming out of, but when there's a narrative about defunding the police and where money should be spent, uh, you know, that is a challenge to navigate that, to navigate or to, um, to, to ask for additional resources and people really get on board uh, to do that. Uh, not long ago, uh, the mayor had put forth a, a proposal to, uh, to give the police department $11 million more uh, to hire additional police officers. You know, we ended up getting kind of half of that, but you know, is it what we need to get our force where it is we need to be? No, it, it will be in, in a better situation, but not where we need to be. And here it is in our nation's capital, the issue uh, the concern that I have when you specifically talk about about manpower, you know, people want to feel safe at the end of the day. And the reality is, while people say, oh, well, law enforcement is reactive, or law enforcement is responsive, how do you quantify the number of homicides or the number of shootings or the crimes that don't occur because of the presence of a police officer? That's a hard number to get at, right? So, and I think of it in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, 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 one of those uh, uh, red light cameras, right? How many people don't get a ticket because they know the camera is there and they kind of slow down because they know 
the camera is there. So it's kind of hard, you know, to quantify that number to say, hey, look, if we have 100 more police officers, this will prevent this or this will prevent that. But what I know right now in terms of challenges is that I got officers out here that are working their tails off to protect the city. And will it, with, with, whether it's with overtime or, or, or officers, um, you know, working double shifts or whatever it is they're doing, that's not a sustainable long-term strategy. It's not. But does the federal government assist you with these challenges? Well, the federal government, well, it depends. I mean, I, obviously, we have other police departments here. But the police departments that are here, they, again, are responsible for what they're responsible for. In other words, again, the Supreme Court police are not over on Benning Road fighting crime. They're f focusing in on what's happening at the Supreme Court. Here you have the Metropolitan Police Department, where we're focused on what's happening all throughout our city, to include on January the 6th, where we have to go in and assist our federal partners. On January the 6th, we have to assist them. You know, on September the 18th, that event occurred on federal property, but it was the Metropolitan Police Department that was in the posture of assisting our federal partners. So, you know, I, I just think that, you know, we now is not the time when we want to, you know, we want to play with, you know, okay, how, what what is a good number? I think we need what we need based upon our chief of police experience, uh, based upon our chief of police recommendation, uh, and what it is we need to keep communities safe. You know, eleven million dollars does not seem like a lot of money to me. It's not. <laughs> Thank you. You know, specifically with training and equipment, um, does the federal system provide you with timely information? and then material support to address crime controls and, and, and these other potential threats that you have to that you hear by the hour. So we, we work very closely with the federal government, and I think the Metropolitan Police Department, you know, just kind of looking at the landscape of law enforcement agencies across the country, we're one of the best in the country at doing this because we have to do it so often. You know, we facilitate First Amendment assemblies in our city every single day. Uh, we moved the President of the United States, the Vice President, other dignitaries, as you mentioned. I mean, this, th these are daily occurrences uh, that, we are, that we are working through. And we have our, our federal partners that we work very closely with in that space. So while there is collaboration, there is cooperation that happens, when you're talking specifically about what's happening in community, right, the assistance that we get there, you know, that's more from the FBI, from ATF. It's not from all of the other partners that are present or who have a footprint in our city. You know, the U.S. Park Police, again, you know, their focus is U.S. Park Police territory. Their focus is not necessarily what's happening on Benning Road in Northeast D.C. Explain what it means to people who don't really understand it, because I just saw in, Minnesota, in other places where they're still trying to defund the police. The only understanding that some people can come to is that they don't realize what that means. And as a chief of police of the most powerful city in the world, explain what it means when someone says defund the police, the ramifications that it has across all spectrums. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you take it literally, right, I mean, it means taking away money uh, from the police. Um, some people, as I have really traversed our city, have a different understanding of what it means. Some people say, hey, you know, well, it, it, it means, you know, taking money from, you know, uh, incarceration or, or things that police would be doing and putting it over here into these other things that, you know, that help communities. And I think that, that there are things that we need to do to help communities, but I don't think 
that we should be doing those things at the risk of public safety, right? At the risk of not having the personnel that we need, right? When you look at the Metropolitan Police Department's budget, over 90% of that budget goes towards personnel. So when you talk about defunding, taking money away, okay, are we talking about taking the money away from training? Are we talking about taking money away from the things that we need, the tools that we need to do our jobs? You know, not having the police cars that we need to respond to calls for service. We respond over 600,000 calls for service in the nation's capital in a year. That's on average what we do. But there was a time when I was a young police officer when we didn't have, the, I, I remember what defund looked like, right? When we didn't have the tools that we needed and we were the murder capital and our police officers shot more people than anywhere else in the country right here in our nation's capital. We were poorly trained as a department back then. So I know what defund looks like. At that time, police officers were going into their pocket to put uh, brakes on cars and tires on cars. So, you know, when people say defund to me, you know, I look at it as, you know, we're taking money away from, from the police department. And while we may be trying to do other things, I think we have to be able to, this is a, this country, I believe, has enough money that we can do both things. And we can do both things well. We can provide services that community members need to do better in community, to invest in education, social work, all those things. But we also need to make sure that our police departments, that our law enforcement agencies are properly funded to do, to do the job that communities expect them to do. You know, there's this stigma about what law enforcement is today and what police officers are. You hear about sexual harassment suits, you hear about rape, you hear about crime, you hear about drugs. You can find that in the broadcast industry, mm -hmm. in the legal industry, sure. in the entertainment industry. You're going to always have that. You can find that in the church. Right. But what I'd like for you to do for us today is really help people understand what law enforcement and what these officers are really like. Because we're going to get into COVID. You don't have a choice to work remotely mm -hmm. right. if you're a law enforcement officer. Right. Right. You, don't have the, you don't have that choice. Right. You have to put it on the line, and officers are dying. Yep. But talk to us about what law enforcement, give people an education about what law enforcement, the real law enforcement, not the bad eggs right. that you can always have, what you do every day. All right. Well, I, I appreciate that, that, that comment, and I, and I say that from the standpoint that uh, law enforcement officers really are just a microcosm of society. Right, as you mentioned, uh, you know, you have bad actors, you got bad doctors, you got you know bad people in ministry, uh, in, in 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 industry, you name it, they're there, and we are no different. But what I know and what I see is police officers who. Uh, daily are making sacrifices uh, with their families, daily uh, committing funds out of their own pocket, you know, to help community members. Not because, you know, I mean, how much can they pay you to put, your, you know, what's enough to put your life on the line, to go out here and do the things that we do in the environment that we're in? You know, I mean, I don't think you can ever pay a person enough, you know, to, to do that, right? So most police officers do this uh, because in their heart, in their heart of hearts, they have a commitment and a duty, a calling upon their life. Life, if you will, to serve community, to serve in community, to serve young people. You know, and I, I, I really, you know, I, 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 sometimes I have to side out a little bit when people say, oh, you know, that's just kind of police propaganda. We're out here, you know, helping kids or we're doing it. We, we do this because we care. We do this because we want to keep these young people, you know, out of our front doorstep because of something negative. You know, we try to do these things to have positive interactions with community so that the first time we interact with a community member, it's not 
not when we're coming to lock somebody up for domestic violence, or it's not when we're coming to take some kid away because, you know, of some other bad thing that happened. We do these things to have these interactions with community so that people see us as part of the community. We are truly part of the communities that we serve. I live here. I work here. I was born here. I was raised here. My mother lives here. My father lives here. You know what I mean? So my, my family is here. So everything that happens in the law enforcement spectrum is equally important to me beyond my professional capacity. You know, I don't want to hear about any one of my loved ones being injured or harmed out here in the streets of the District of Columbia. I don't. And if it means that the law enforcement officers that are out there are doing the things that they need to do to make communities safe, and I know that they're doing all that they can, I appreciate that. That's what I want to see our law enforcement officers do, and that's what the majority of the law enforcement officers in the District of Columbia do each and every day to make this city safe. Did you hear the chief's passion and love for humanity and love for the city? Did you hear? It's the best I've ever heard anyone articulate what they put on the line every day. I just hope people are listening to this. How do we get the community on board with police? Are you concerned with the, how difficult things are for officers today? The disrespect when our officers kill people, cheer, they try to run up. I mean, what? How do we change this craziness? So, I mean, I, yeah, I am concerned about that. You know, I, my officers, our officers, as I of, oftentimes say, because they are our officers. They're the officers. When if you were to leave here and go across the bridge and get involved in an accident, these are your officers who'd be responding to that to assist you and whoever the other person is involved in the accident. And when we have these things that are going on uh, in law enforcement where they are just constantly attacked, constantly uh, second guess for split second decisions that they're making. I'm not talking about, you know, overt bad acts by police officers at all. I'm talking about, you know, split second decisions that these officers are making, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment when things are going on and to be second guessed. I mean, that, that, that is a heavy burden to carry, but it's the burden, it's the chosen burden that we carry as law enforcement officers. What I think we have to do, uh, I'm gonna keep on telling the truth to community. I'll do it in the street. I'll do it in a community room. I'll do it in a Zoom room. It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to tell the people the truth about what's happening in the nation's capital, about what's happening specifically in their communities, right? And when we talk about the truth, when we talk about really what's happening, you know, like we all should be on the same team with respect to making our community safe. I think that's a message that everyone can get around, right? I think all of us can rally around that particular issue, public safety. Now, what does that look like is another question, but I think we can all get around that and then as we talk more, you know, I've done a series of uh, chat with the chiefs where these are listening sessions with community members all across the city because I want to know from community members, what is it you want to see from the police and what is it you don't want to see from the police? And what I hear people saying is it's not that we don't want to see the police. It's not that we want to defund police. That's the majority of the messages that I've been hearing. That this, These are coming from, I'm talking about from D.C. residents. I'm not talking about from any special interest group. I'm not talking about from anybody from you know any other place other than neighborhoods of DC who are impacted by crime and violence that happens in our city what I'm hearing from residents is totally different from what the national narrative is and that's why it's important for me to be out there having these conversations are you concerned about losing qualified immunity for your police officers 
Qualified immunity is an important part of, uh, of law enforcement. Uh, I know that there's been a lot of uh, discussions around that and deals have been talked about and broken down and so forth, but I think that if, if qualified immunity is lost, I think that you may have officers, uh, you know, whatever the intent is, I'm just saying how it would be perceived by law enforcement, you would have people, you know, kind of second, having second thoughts about whether or not they want a career in law enforcement. I think that already happens in the space that we're in now. I mean, you talk to officers, officers, no one wants to be the next YouTube sensation where, you know, as a result of your official duties, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, people mm. are showing up at your house or now you're getting, you know, mailed to or people are harassing your kids. I mean, like, people just don't want to sign up for that. And so we're already kind of in that space. And I think when you talk about, you know, uh, qualified immunity, that, that, that just adds another layer of, uh, of hesitancy for people coming into the profession. Uh, and you know, with the pandemic, um, you're losing officers. And not only that, some of them just don't want to do the job anymore. They don't feel that it's worth it. Yeah. Even without the pandemic, you had challenges. Yeah. So, yeah, we have that, right? I mean, we are losing officers. Some officers have made decisions, and, and I get it, right? It's not all just because of, of the, the national narrative with law enforcement. Uh, here in the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, our officers are required to have X amount of college hour, uh, credit hours. Oftentimes, they come with full four-year degrees and advanced degrees, right, beyond their, their, their uh, bachelor's degree. And in that space, you have officers now who are educated, and they have opportunities, other opportunities, right? Before I got a college degree, you know, and I had my high school diploma, when I first started with the police department, perhaps the opportunities for me were limited. Right? Some other people who are coming here, you know, you have a master's degree in whatever, economics, let's say, and, you know, you join the police department because you have a, a duty to serve and you have a calling upon your life, but now you're faced with all these other challenges. It's like, well, maybe I can go over here, maybe have lower risk. In addition to lower risk, maybe I can make more money and not have to deal with all the things that law enforcement officers have to deal with, you know? So I think that we have some people who are in that space. I think we're having some people who join law enforcement say, hey, this may be not what I thought it was. I didn't expect that, that, that people were going to talk to me this way. I didn't expect that, you know, somebody might spit in my face. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect that, you know, somebody might just, you know, people just don't want to go to jail in some case, and I got to fight, right? Some people... Some people, you know, their, their perception of law enforcement is, you know, you tell a guy, hey, look, you're under arrest, and everybody just peacefully put their hands behind their back and say, take me away. That, that doesn't happen all the time, right? I mean, sometimes, you, you, you know, the nature of the business of the work that we're in, sometimes, you know, we have to be physical in physical altercations with individuals, and some people just don't, they really don't want that type of work. They didn't know that they were getting into that kind of work. And I know it, 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 you, you might think like, wow, how could they not know that they're not getting into it? But, you know, the average person, you know, has not, some, somebody has not spat in the face of the average person, right? But you get police officers who routinely face those types of challenges while they're out doing their duty. You know, crime is skyrocketing. Whether it's in the big cities or the small towns. And the solution and the answer is no different than it is in a city like Washington, D.C. I am curious um, to know how much has defunded police, if in any way, uh, has contributed to this. And do you go back to the broken window policy of Giuliani when he was in New York? 
uh, we've seen examples that you can slow this crime down, but sometimes you cannot slow it down because of political correctness, mm. because of politicians, mm. and the media. Mm. And if I believe that if law enforcement is allowed to do their job, crime will go down. I think we have, uh, you know, obviously we have a responsibility um, to go out and make sure that we are doing all that we can as law enforcement officers to make communities safer. Uh, but the picture really is, is bigger than that. I wish I could say, you know, it was this one thing, right? If you, if you, if you just gave the police more money, or if you just gave, you know, if you, you instituted this program, uh, that crime uh, would not, would, would, you know, crime would stop. Um, and I don't think it's, it's uh, I don't think it's any one thing. Just like I think the solution to the issue is more, it's, it's that dynamic. It's more than one thing, right? We have to have several tools within the toolbox. Uh, for me, I think the biggest tool that, that, that we're, is not being leveraged is the tool of accountability, right? That's where the issue lies for me because people who we know are violent, who commit crimes in community, uh, they can't do those things if they're not in community, right? And I'm not talking about mass incarceration. I'm talking about making community safer. I'm talking about making sure that people who, who commit violent acts in community, that they get held accountable for those violent acts, right? When we have individuals who, for example, uh, who get arrested uh, for, you know, shooting uh, someone, uh, you know, that person, in my mind, should not be back out on the streets in any community, right? leading up to their trial, right? And once they, they have a trial, got, if they're convicted or whatever the case may be, there should be accountability. The question is, what does accountability look like to community? What does that really look like? Should a person who shoots somebody, is it, is, would you qualify, if they go to court, they get found guilty, and that person is out of jail you know, within, within 12 months or a year or two years, and that person is out of jail back out in community, is that accountability for community? That's not a question that I can answer. That's a question that we should ask, that we really need from community. Because when I look at these individuals, people always say, oh, it's, it's a small population of people. Yeah, how do we know it's a small population of people? Because they keep on offending. You know, guys don't just wake up and say, I'm gonna go kill somebody today, right? I mean, most time, I mean, and that's like the first time that they've done it. Most time there's a lead up to these things. And the lead up to these things are violent crimes that occur in communities. So if we really want communities to be safer, while we're talking about programming and giving people opportunities, what about the guy who doesn't want a job? He doesn't want to take advantage of the opportunities that are given. He doesn't want to do the educational piece. He wants to live that life. If he decide, he or she decides they want to live that life, then what is the response to that? It shouldn't be, you know, just allow them co to continue to make communities unsafe. That should not be the answer. I believe that the answer should be that we hold them accountable for the things that they do. If you shoot somebody, there should be accountability for that. And that accountability should not be what I say it is. That accountability should be what community members think that it is. If a guy who shot somebody or a guy who's burglarizing houses, he's terrorizing your neighborhood, burglarizing houses while people are asleep in this particular neighborhood, and he's out, he go, he's arrested by the police, and because it's not a violent offense necessarily, that person gets put before the court, and two days later, he's back out in community awaiting his trial in the house next to you. How, how safe do you feel at that point? You know, so there has to really be, I believe, a discussion around what accountability looks like. We talk about accountability for the police all the time, and I'm okay with that, but when we talk about accountability for the entire system, every step of the system, 
that that's a different discussion and, and people get real nervous around that because that would cause us to do things differently and i'm simply saying that if law enforcement can do things differently then maybe perhaps if we look at our entire ecosystem that it's time for other people to do things different in the space of accountability and define what you would want to do different so what i would like to see differently like for example uh, a person who uh, is a violent offender and a person is arrested with a firearm in the District of Columbia, any place uh, for that matter. Uh, what I would like to see is that person uh, incarcerated so that they're not making our communities unsafe, uh, pending the outcome of a trial. That's what I would like to see, right? Because again, that person who used the firearm, who's a violent criminal, he can't do more harm in community if he's not in community. But what does it say when that individual is back in community? What does it say about my legitimacy as a law enforcement officer when I'm saying to community members, hey, we need you to help the police. If you see something, say something. If you come from the neighborhood where I come from and that guy who you say something about is back out in your community, two days later, three days later, you might not be saying much more after that. You understand what I'm saying? So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a dynamic there that exists and it doesn't necessarily exist in every community, right? Because these violent offenders, they don't get, they're not being released necessarily back out into every community. They go back to home base where they're from. And oftentimes home base is the space where they victimize people the most. What, what about this other uh, thing that is sweeping the country with the state attorney generals? They want to decriminalize prostitution, petty drugs, uh, because they need to focus on the bigger crime. Well, I think those are, those are decisions that voters oftentimes will make. But this is what, I, what I'll say. One of the things that I've seen lately um, as, here in the nation's capital and as I've talked to major city chiefs across the country, to me, it, I, there are more guns in our, in our streets right now, people who shouldn't have them. I'm not talking about the legal ones, because we got a lot of those too, but people who shouldn't have them. There are more guns in our streets right now than I've ever seen before. And when they're in the hands of the wrong people, people who shouldn't have them, people who have committed violent crimes before, they are very much inclined to use those firearms when they find themselves in a situation or to perpetrate other crimes. So when we talk about, you know, just kind of, how we, you know, how we, how we navigate, how we, you know, how we navigate the space, and we're talking about, you know, not enforcing prostitution. Yes, we should want to get people help for those things that we need to get help for, get them help for. You know, my father, my father was a drug abuser, right? He, he wasn't out here doing anything violent. He was a drug abuser. He need, he needed help. Thank God, he's, you know, he's good now. He's been drug free for maybe 12 years now, but. Incarceration wasn't the thing that would have put him on a different course. But when you add violence to that, those are the things that make communities unsafe. The other issues, I think that, you know, there are uh, there is a, a, a an appetite in society to really want to help people who are in a bad situation. You know, like, why is this person out here, you know, engaged in, in sex work? Why, why is that? Is there some alternatives that we can find for this person? And if we can find alternatives for this person, that's great. Let's find alternatives. But if I live in the house right there where this person is committing their sex work, and I got to walk my kids past that in the morning, that's unacceptable. That is unacceptable. And I understand that this person may have other issues and other, other concerns, and I, I get all that, but I don't want to walk past used condoms. I don't want my kids to walk past people engaged in behavior that's not something that I've introduced my kid to. You understand what I'm saying? So I think that, you know, as, as community, that, that's where we have space to really work on things. Hey, 
low-level offenses. Let's get people help. What kind of help is it that they need? Let's get them that help. If they take advantage of it, that's great. If they don't take advantage of it, what's the accountability measure? Because as a law-abiding citizen, I should not have to I should not have to be subjected to the things I'm subjected to simply because of where I live and somebody decides to commit illegal acts in front of my home. You know, and Chief Conte is saying something really profound here. It's as if the laws and this defunding of police and what's happening in this country is giving the criminals everything they want on, on a civil platter. We're making it easy for you. Uh, not, not, not just with law enforcement, we're going to dumb them down, we're making it easy with the court. Imagine if you're a criminal sitting back watching what's happening in this country. Well, I think about that oftentimes, right? <laughs> and I, the, the things that I think about, I think about, uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, what are, the, what are the things that we've done, you know, to correct the system, right? I mean, the system is, has been broken for a long time, right? I mean, we, we, we tried mass incarceration, you know, locking people up. You mentioned, uh, you know, the broken windows theory, you know, locking people up for all the people. I mean, we've done all that and we've seen people going to jail for, you know, small amounts of marijuana, how devastating that was. I mean, we, we've seen all of those things, right? But now in this space where we are now, where we have violent crime that's, that's rising in communities all across the United States, here again, you know, I have to really bring this discussion, you know, back to accountability, right? So for the, you know, we, we, we've done things to change the police. We've done things to, to sort of right some of the wrongs of the past with respect to low-level offenses, right? We're not doing this anymore. We're not prosecuting that anymore. But what have we done in the space of accountability, right? To say, okay, but for these violent crimes, these things right here, we're holding you to task on. What have we done? And this is really across the country. What have we done in that space? What are the, you know, whether it's legislative, whether it's, you know, prosecution, whether it's law enforcement, what have we done in the space of accountability for people who commit violent crime? Those are the things that people are afraid of. Those are the things that make it unsafe for, you know, for my mom to walk across the street, you know, to the grocery store at 11 o'clock at night where I might not feel safe with her doing that, right? It, it, it's not some of the low-level stuff, but those are things we have to keep our eye on, too. You know, I've had a conversation recently about uh, marijuana, right? And some people have said, oh, well, the chief said, you know, it's, it, it's, the, it's the decriminalization of marijuana. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when you talk in the space of marijuana, and the lack of an appetite to really prosecute low-level offenders who are distributing marijuana illegally in the streets. Those low-level offenders carry firearms, oftentimes. In addition to that, when you think about something that is a crime that's low-risk, low-risk in terms of prosecution, low-risk in terms of them going through the criminal justice system, and high reward, the money that they can make off of that, you think about it. Some people in a situation, if I can make a couple of thousand dollars you know, and, and as long as I have under two ounces of marijuana on me, you know, the police are not going to arrest me for that because the law does not allow. Prosecution is not going to prosecute. I mean, it's considered a low-level offense. I might be on to something. And if I'm a criminal, that might be something that I think about. Mm. In fact, I'll tell you that I've had conversations with some of, some of them that are out there, and they say, Chief, why, why should I go and do something different? 
Right. So when you're having conversations like that, and again, it's really kind of taking the conversation, you know, to what closest to where the pain is. Right. I, I, I want to have these conversations with young men. And I have had these conversations with young men about, you know, why are we seeing some of the things that we're seeing? Why are they doing some of the things that they're doing? How can I help so that we're not in this space where people feel unsafe? Because when that guy who's selling marijuana, who's armed with a gun and somebody comes to rob him, he don't just stand there. He shoot back. And that low-level marijuana offense of that guy carrying that gun who shoots back, it's okay until that bullet goes through a window and paralyzes somebody who's unintended or hits a kid who's going by on a bicycle who's unintended. Then it's an issue, and there's an uproar and an outcry. But I'm saying, like, before we get to the uproar and the outcry, looking at the issues for what they are. If the young man is out there engaged in behavior that's criminal in nature, there has to be accountability for that, because if not, He's encouraged to continue on doing what he is doing, and that's problematic. You know, when you hear that in the city of Baltimore, 41% of the kids throughout the entire school system is graduating with less than a 1.0 grade point average, when you hear about the education in crisis and juveniles not even in the classroom, talk about when we hear about what's happening in these classrooms all across the country, how it's going to eventually impact the job that you do every day? So, I mean, you know, every case that we get, whether it's a, a homicide involving a juvenile, uh, a violent offense that involves a juvenile, you know, I look for the patterns. And there is, is clearly a pattern that we have to disrupt before they get there. Education is a, is a major component of that pattern. When kids are not educated, if they're not in school or they're not uh, you know, engaged in, in things that will, that will benefit them in the long run, oftentimes you see them veering off course and engaged in activity. And first it starts out as the low-level things, right? They start out truant. They got issues at home with parents. And then after that, you know, it turns into something else. And now and then it goes on to theft and stealing cars and then robbing. And, and then it just, it just goes on and on. And I've watched this for many years. This is not just since I've been sitting in this seat, right? It's like with every kid, you, you can look back and see that there's going to be some trauma along the way, some physical abuse, sometimes sexual abuse that happens with our young people, and it's so unfortunate. But if we know that these are early, tra early traumas that happen that oftentimes get them off the course, you know, what are we doing on the front end so that they don't end up on the doorstep of law enforcement? That's key. We have to make sure that we are, I think, as society, disrupting those things. Sometimes, sometimes, the best situation for a kid is not back in the home with his mother or his father where there is no structure or there is substance abuse or there are other things in there that make this not such a great environment for a kid to be raised in. But for a long time, the way that the system has been structured, we're in a hurry to get them through the through the system so that we can put them right back in the same environment where there's no structure. It, it pains me when I hear about young people who, for whatever reason, come into uh, you know, have come across the lane of law enforcement and maybe they get um, uh, deferred to some other, um, some other type of intervention strategy through one of the other government partners. We hear that they're away at school, they're doing great, they got structure. Maybe they're not even in the District of Columbia. But at some point, you know, 
we put them back in the unstructured environment that they come from, where there is no accountability. They don't have a time that they got to be in the house. They're not going to school. They're not doing it. And, and what, what do they do? Young people out late at night, those types of things. And you look at kind of what's been happening around the country. Look at, you know, what happened at, uh, 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 at Six Flags America just a couple of days ago, right? You look at what happened with some of our young people in some of the schools recently. Some of these things, they're telltale signs as we lead up to these big events. They're telltale signs that our young people are in trouble and I think we have a responsibility really as a community as an ecosystem to make sure that we intervene as all as as as, as much in advance as we possibly can to help them you know in, across the country in some cities crime is going up but prosecution prosecutions of the crime are going down what's happening in Washington DC so we're seeing some of that uh, here in our nation's capital as well. Again, we're not we're not any different from from any other uh, place. Sometimes, you know, we have issues. Uh, as an example, uh, when we when we talk about uh, prosecution of gun cases, I'll, I'll use that you know kind of as an example. Uh, one of the things sometimes we'll see a police officer, let's say a police officer chases a person, they're running through the alley, the person tosses a firearm, the police officer makes the apprehension of the person, and the firearm is recovered from a trash can. That person is taken into custody, but oftentimes what will happen, that case is no paper, pending the outcome of DNA to see, and you know, that takes time, right? So that person is, again, released back out into the community, pending the outcome of DNA. We want to see if this person's DNA is actually on this firearm that was recovered by the police officer in the alley, right? And it's like, well, wow, wow, wait a minute, right? Okay, is that the point where we are in our nation where, you know, j juries, you know, will not believe police officers or prosecutors will not move cases forward or judges, you know, would, would feel some type of way because uh, we're asking for a hold of a person who was in possession of a firearm who, you know, that he, he or she may have tossed in the process of being apprehended. Again, remember what I said earlier. It's not like people say, oh, you know, hey, you're under arrest. Oh, here's my gun. You know, I mean, people don't want to be apprehended. So part of what we do as law enforcement officers through that process is trying to bring forth the best case that we possibly can. And sometimes it's not pretty, right? It's not pretty that it's not, unfortunately, you didn't catch the guy with the gun immediately in his waistband, but you do have it. You heard the clank going across the ground, but this guy back out in community. He's back out in community until we get a DNA match back or something. And that's, you know, five, what, what's happening five or six months while we're waiting on that? You know, obviously COVID has changed so much. You know, I saw a story where New York, if uh, someone goes in a restaurant and they don't have the vaccination and they refuse to leave, they call law enforcement. I said, my God, how can you use law enforcement for something like this? First, let me ask you, how are you and your officers surviving COVID, the impact that it's having, and how do, and how do you, uh, if, enforce COVID protocols with all the things that you just talked about for the last hour? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's been difficult uh, a bit, but we don't, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Police Department has not been in the posture of being the, the COVID police, right, out in community. You know, we're going to lock you up because you don't have masks or because you're, you know, enter, because you entered into an establishment, you know, I mean, we have taken the taken the the uh, path of education, you know, whatever the, the city, you know, mandate, and it's, it's, it's changed as we've gone through COVID, you know, it's changed at different times. So if we were called into a situation, you know, obviously we take the take the opportunity to educate the person about whatever the, the requirements are at that time. Uh, how it has affected the department, um, we've lost uh, so far 
uh, two officers to, uh, to COVID. One uh, most recently, I guess maybe about uh, maybe two weeks ago, uh, we lost an officer uh, to COVID. You know, very sad uh, for our agency. But I think overall, you know, we're faring uh, pretty well. Uh, in that space. Uh, again, under the circumstance, our police officers have had to come to work every day. Uh, we've changed up the way we do business a little bit uh, in that, you know, sometimes uh, when we interact with individuals, we looked at, for example, what reports can we do uh, over the phone or what reports can we do online as opposed to necessarily having to have a face-to-face -face interaction where we're unnecessarily putting our officers uh, in contact with somebody when they really don't have to do that. So we've tried to find other alternatives, but at the end of the day, every day since day one of COVID, men and women of the Metropolitan Police Department have showed up for work, done their jobs out in community without fail. You know, the police departments today, Chief Conti, are more advantageous with technology than yesteryear. You now have the military, the CIA, you have economists, FBI intelligence. You're highly intelligent now. How do you deploy? And what about the biometric identities other than fingerprints? You know, back then they used to do sketches. They don't do that anymore. And even the eye scans, the facial recognition, and the big brother watching, the body camera mandates. How does your, your department play in all these new advantages, advantages to make sure that it does not do it at the expense of a person's privacy? Yeah, so um, the Metropolitan Police Department, you know, obviously we have access so some uh, some of the technologies that you mentioned, not everything, uh, you know, not facial recognition and all that kind of stuff. We don't operate in that space uh, as an agency. Uh, but um, certainly, you know, we have a very robust body-worn camera uh, deployment uh, protocol here in the Metropolitan Police Department. All of our pol uniformed police officers that are out there, uh, you know, they are they are situated with these with these cameras, and you know that has been it has been very helpful. Quite honestly, uh, it has been able to tell the story of some situations where you know people might not necessarily believe, you know, the version that law enforcement, you know, might publicly say. It, it has given, it has told the story. In some instances where officers uh, have been faced with situations with, you know, frivolous complaints, as an example, oh, he was rude or discourteous to me, uh, that kind of thing, you know, the technology has helped us in that space. Uh, and also the other way, right? In some instances where someone says, hey, look, this all has been rude or discourteous to me, and we review a, a body-worn camera, and in fact, he or she was, right? That doesn't meet the standard of what we set for the Metropolitan Police Department. So I think that that is fair. I think that technology has been good for us overall. You know, obviously I can't tell you all the little tricks of the trade yeah, that we have, that. but uh, certainly in that space, uh, you know, as society uh, is making better use of technology, uh, the law enforcement community, we are certainly operating in that space uh, to make the best use of technology that we have. There's incredible uh, technology uh, that's out here. I learn things every day. I really do in terms of how technology uh, really benefits society, but also how it's beneficial uh, to law enforcement and not in the space uh, to the extent of where we are compromising anyone's uh, privacy or anything like that, but just, you know, how might these things be be uh, uh, helpful to law enforcement to help us progress a case forward in some instances, right? Because our lives, right, a lot of our lives, a lot of, you know, we can go on social media and you can find out all about me, you can find out all about you without having met me before or what people, you know, what, what the online, at least what the online profile says about you or what it says about me. And in the same way with, you know, with people, right, people who we deal with, you know, the story is really kind of out there. So it's important. 
important to us uh, that we keep up to date with those things that are going on. I think my 16-year-old probably still knows a little bit more about that stuff than I do, but we certainly uh, operate in that space. You know, in one minute that we have left, yeah. you're fortunate to have a mayor, Mayor Basel, yep. who's pro-police, yep. who's never apologized for giving you the funding and the backbone you need for this city. How important that is that leadership? That's huge. It is huge. And to be quite frank, if I didn't have that, I, I wouldn't be in this role. Uh, it's important. She has been nothing but uh, supportive uh, from day one. Uh, I knew the type of, I mean, she was very clear about the type the, the type of chief of police that she wanted uh, for our nation's capital. And, you know, and it's my job to make sure that I deliver on that. Chief Conte, I'm going to tell you, I've had many interviews in my lifetime. This, to me, is one of the most inspiring, truthful, and can. I just love your passion and your concern, and most importantly, the fact that you do this not because of the money. You do it because you're willing to die for the safety of the people of this city. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Armstrong Williams Show. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. 